From the Restoration Archives, this is Light and Truth. This address, entitled Personal Revelation, was originally recorded on September 16, 2008, in Sandy, Utah, in front of a live audience. Tell the truth here. (laughs) And since no one's paying me... um, yeah, the other problem is this. Um, in in the Doctrine and Covenants, there's a there's a mandatory statement. It's much ignored, but it's a mandatory statement. It, it says, so I have to talk loud. Pretend you're kissing your wife. Yeah, do um, Bob Dylan. Bob's always swallowing the mic. Yeah. Can you can you turn it up? Oh, talk normal. Can you hear me? Is it? Can you hear me back there? All right. The other problem with uh, treating you as if you are a jury is the um, mandatory statement in the Doctrine and Covenants, much ignored by us, but nevertheless the case, which says, um, "If you receive not the Spirit, you shall not teach." Um, I I view that as uh, mandatory. If you receive not the Spirit, ye shall not, as one of the prohibitions on what we ought to be doing. I'm I'm always amazed at those who are eager to do this kind of thing. I am a reluctant draftee. I don't want to do this. I don't think I will ever do this again. Doug nags me to these things. And so I'm telling you that if he tells you I'm coming again, don't believe him because... (laughs) I view this as a as a terrible responsibility. Anytime you're going to take up the subject of truth and you're going to speak, I think you have an obligation to do so by the Spirit. And if you don't, then then the requirement is shut up. Just just don't do it. We we have this erroneous reading of um the the description given in uh, section one hundred thirty eight about those that were called to be um, rulers. Uh, There's a parallel drawn between the statement in section 138 and the section, or the the description given by Abraham in the preexistence about how Abraham, you were chosen, you were one of them, you were one of the rulers that were were, uh, chosen before the world began um, to be a ruler. And we equate ruler. Well, in the Book of Mormon, the equation between ruler is teacher, has nothing to do with position or rank or authority. It has everything to do with whether or not you teach. And so in the Book of Mormon, uh, what Nephi says is that my, my brothers are always angry at me because I'm going to be a teacher and a ruler over them. Teacher and ruler are, are, are an equivalent. Abraham presided over a family. But Abraham learned great truths, and he taught great truths, and he has distinguished as a consequence of the things which he learned and he taught. Um, You can occupy a position of authority and never say one thing worth anyone remembering. And therefore, you are not, by definition, using the Book of Mormon, a ruler. On the other hand, you can be one of the least of the Lord's. Uh, I I have heard, in fact, the most memorable statements I have heard in church meetings uh, came from a, 
a stake president bearing testimony while talking about the um, David and Goliath incident in the Old Testament came from an elderly woman, widowed and uh, in ill health, bearing testimony in a fast and testimony meeting. Um, when I think about those talks that have affected me, that have enlightened me, that have enlivened me, um, it, it is the rule that they come from odd places. And it is the exception when I hear something like uh, Hubie Brown's profile of a prophet that still resonates with me. Um, there, there are talks, the greatness of which will endure forever. Paul on Mars Hill uh, talking is still resonating in, in the world. You know, I don't know how you're going to get that up here, but if you got it here, I'd use it. Um, has a wide base. Just to turn it into a mosh pit and bring the hand over to, to the front. In any event, so 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 we've got this. Um, well, I'll be quiet while we move the chalkboard. I surrender to the chaos of. You, there it is. Just, just out of curiosity, do we have a, do we have a marker and an eraser? Because it's a lot of, it's a lot of trouble to go to. Ooh. Oh, we do. We do. Okay, I'm going to be wary of the microphone and try and stay close to it, but I can still reach part of this. So the, the, the obligation becomes, if, if you read section 42 and you read what the scriptures generally have to say about the subject, the obligation becomes, if you're going to say something, to say it by the Spirit. And so I'm, I'm hoping that the, the trip to and from the airport, the, the soccer game that I've had to go to, and the fact that when I leave here, I am in a hurry to, to get my daughter and get her to the pet store to buy the frozen pinky mice for her pet snake, and then get her to her, her babysitting appointment at six o'clock. We'll all come together somehow happily and that, uh, that I can forget about that while I'm here. It's a corn corn snake. So it's a corn. Have you seen her corn snake? It's it's this pink, light colored. It's a pretty snake, as snakes go. But uh, um, in one of the latest offerings, in the um, by the way, all of this bears on a subject that we'll get to. But you have to triangulate in if you're really gonna if you're gonna say something meaningful. One of the latest offerings about our greatest controversy, uh, we now have a massacre at Mountain Meadows in publication. Um, we have listed, um, I mean, everyone refers to this as Turley's book uh, when it was coming out, but listed in order of priority, uh, the authors are Ronald Walker, who's an independent historian and writer of Latter-day Saint history, 
Richard Turley is listed second. He's an assistant church historian for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And then Glenn Leonard is listed as the third author as the former director of the LDS Museum of Church History and Art. Um, it was published, or it is published by Oxford University, carried by Deseret Book, and it was the it was the intention that it be published by Deseret Book in order for the book to to bear, or excuse me, published by Oxford Press to bear the imprimatur of independent um, uh, scholarly approval on the book and not be something that is simply an apology. But when you go back to the acknowledgments portion of the book and you look at who all was involved in getting this into print, he references colleagues in the family and uh, church history department and other departments of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and Brigham Young University traveled to many library archives and other historical institutions, and they list all of them that they went to, and it is formidable. And they give uh, special thanks to all of those from those various church institutional sources who participated in this information gathering and give credit to them. Then um, they thank the professionalism of several editors and they list the editors, many of them inside the church or Deseret Book, but then they also thank an editor from Oxford Press. Um, they thank uh, others at church headquarters of Brigham Young University who gave countless hours of assistance with their various skills and, and knowledge, including, and they give a page and a half list of names. These are names that are involved in, in doing the review, and included among them is Dean C. Jesse, who is working on the Joseph Smith papers. And then um, they, they also thank the skills and knowledge of archivists, librarians, historians, and others, some of whom reviewed and provided information or critiqued the manuscript and included among them are some very interesting names like Levana Fielding Anderson, Richard L. Anderson, Sharon Avery, Lowell Binion, Ed Firmage, John Groberg, um, Steve Robinson, John Welch. He's ubiquitous, okay? You can't get anything into print without John Welch's name appearing somewhere. And then, and then there is thanks given to doctors who helped them and to others who were scholars that looked into it. And pages of names, Richard Bushman's name appears, John Carmack's name, Sherry Dew, Ronald Esprin, uh, Amon Moss, Corey Maxwell, well, Corey and Karen Maxwell. My suspicion is Karen did more than Corey did, but that's just my suspicion. Um, Jan Ships. And then the end, all this, um, and this is pages. This is pages, and it's who's who, okay? They end all this with, we also express appreciation for the support and feedback of Russell M. Nelson and Dallin Oaks, advisors to the Family and Church History Department, and of Marlon K. Jensen, church historian. So, I assume, therefore, that this is a very deliberate book. This is a very calculated and intentional book and that the words that appear in this have been weighed carefully in the balance and chosen in order to have an effect. Okay, let's accept that as a given for a moment. Go read the acknowledgments if you would like to check that uh, and reach your own conclusion. 
There are precious few things which appear in this book, uh, Massacre at Mountain Meadows, which touch upon the subject of revelation or visitations. I think I can read all of them to you. Um, I may have missed some because I just finished the book a few hours ago and um, may not have been as deliberate as I went through it as they were in preparing it, but I think these are the quotes. This is talking about um, the, the, the primary um, villain responsible, ultimately, the only one that will be executed for the crime of murder of over 120 people at Mountain Meadows. Uh, this is um, Brother Lee. During missionary tours to Illinois, Kentucky, and Tennessee, Lee said he beheld heavenly visions, contested with evil spirits, and defeated other Christian ministers with strong, inspired words. Although at first timid and inexperienced before a congregation, he soon believed he was transformed by a higher power. My tongue was like the pen of a ready writer. I scarcely knew what I was saying, he reflected after speaking to a congregation for an hour and a half. I grew in grace from day to day, he said. So, beheld heavenly visions, contested with evil spirits, defeated other Christian ministers with strong inspired words. It's from page 60. Beginning on page 65, there's another uh, source they quote at some length speaking also about um, John D. Lee on the subject of inspiration and the Spirit. Um, Thomas D. Brown wrote an extended passage in his diary that accused Lee of having an, quote, abundance of dreams, visions, and revelations, unquote, that he used for his own purposes. Brown believed the actual source of Lee's information was more ordinary. Quote, he listened behind a fence to brothers Peter Schertz and William Young, who were talking of his immeasurable selfishness, and he repeated it next meeting as having read it from a sheet let down from heaven before his eyes, unquote, Brown claimed. Then there was the incident in which Lee, thinking he was temporarily out of favor with Brigham Young, his adoptive father, was troubled over whether he would get the appointment uh, to be the U.S. Indian farmer, which was a governmental position, and Brigham Young was at the time the governor. And so as the governor and as his adopted father, he could make an official appointment. And um, um, uh, Lee was sweating over that because it meant, it meant an, an income for him. Uh, and Brigham Young, sure enough, did make the appointment, which, which gratified him because he now he knew he was, he was not out of sync with his adoptive father. And again, this is from page 66. When Lee learned of his appointment, he wept, not because it satisfied his ambition, he said, but because it allowed him to continue to serve. He later said that several days before Young's letter arrived, quote, an angel of the Lord stood by his bedside and talked about these and many other things, unquote. Now, are you picking up a pattern yet about how spiritual phenomena are being dealt with since we're confining it exclusively to Lee in this, in this account? And since Lee will ultimately turn out to be um, filled with all manner of wickedness and chicanery, um, 
Well, after he had led uh, the early abortive attack um, and personally become involved in the uh, in the surrounding of the uh, the immigrant wagon when they were dug in, uh, in the fracas that ensued and the bullet fire that was going on, um, he got uh, hit several times in his clothing, but he did not get injured. Um, then a couple of um, um, Mormon um, uh, communication bearers, Wilden and Clues, arrived um, the uh, the incident occurs, this is set out on page 172, um, in this way. And this account, by the way, will, um, you'll want in your own mind to juxtapose this account with Willard Richard's statement about why he escaped Liberty Jail without any injury and what some people believe that uh, possession of uh, uh, the, the temple rights do for you. But, that's not mentioned, but keep that in mind. So reading now on page 172, at one point, perhaps after getting bullet holes in his clothing, well, undoubtedly, because that's the point. I mean, he has the bullet holes, but this is between dashes. So it's just to remind you that we've, we've got that background. Um, at one point, perhaps after getting bullet holes in his clothing, Lee had told the Paiutes that the bullets of the immigrants would not hurt the Mormons the same as the Indians. Seeing Wilden and Clues, the Paiutes decided to test Lee's claims. They demanded that Wilden and Clues should put on Indian attire and run unarmed past the immigrant train within easy range of the rifles to a neighboring point about 100 yards distance. It may have been the same route Jackson's brother took when he was shot. The two white men concluded that they would have to take their chances in doing what the Indians demanded or risk being killed by them. So they ran amid a shower of bullets from the immigrant camp and reached the opposite point in safety. The men then returned to the Paiute camp where they were heartily cheered for their bravery after their perilous run. Soon clues, soon said clues, we were hailed from a ridge on our left. We looked around and there stood John D. Lee. Lee told the Indians to return to their camp, pacifying their feelings by making explanations to them, then sat down to talk to them. Well, we get that. And in the context of this book and this treatment, um, and given the fact that the focus of the tale is upon the... um, what's the worst crime committed in the history of the the, the church. Um, this is the, the first words. This is the preface. On September 11th, 1857, Mormon settlers in southern Utah used a false flag of truce to lull a group of California-bound immigrants from their circled wagons and then slaughtered them. When the killing was over, more than 100 butchered bodies lay strewn across half a mile stretch of an upland meadow. Most of the victims were women and children. The perpetrators were members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, aided by Indians. It makes no apology for um, the church's involvement. It exposes it. Uh, it limits the damage to those who were locally involved in perpetrating it and, and doesn't gloss it over. It's a, it's a very raw, candid uh, description, including of the killings themselves. And I've read to you from this book, deliberately prepared, those statements that, that exist in it, 
with respect to the subject of visions, revelations, and visitations. And so, if you are going to form an opinion about how we regard the subject of visitations, and this is the latest statement from all of the gathered, um, well, powers that be, blue bloods, insiders, uh, credentialed folk, all, all the good people that we rely upon. If that's what they had to say about it, you would have a hard time reconciling that with what our 19-year-old missionaries do. The 19-year-old missionaries go out, they hand people a Book of Mormon, and they say, look, look, here in Moroni 10.4, it says, ask God, and he's, he's going to tell you. And oh, by the way, this whole thing started, this whole thing began when Joseph Smith read in Scripture, ask God. And Joseph read that God giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not. And Moroni says, if you ask with a sincere heart, God's going to answer you. And so our missionaries go about saying to everyone, you go get revelation. And then we encounter the church historian and the director of the, well, the assistant church historian, reviewed by the church historian, Marlon Jensen, who I knew when he was still practicing law. Um, and, and no one seems to have said, wait a minute. For a church whose bedrock remains, indispensably remains, uh, the presence of the Spirit, and for a church who, in order to expand, requires those that would like to join to go ask of God and get an answer to prayer, ought we not to do something more <laughs> with the passing mention of Revelation than to simply confine it to the guy who gets executed for the crime, the guy who led the charge that created the problem, the guy who shot someone and we had to now cover it up because white men were involved in this incident. And if the immigrants got out, the immigrants were going to spread the word of that. Ought we not put revelation in the hands of someone else and in some other context? Well, there is a little bit more, and to be fair, I probably ought to read read that. Because the sisters were involved. At 2 o'clock that afternoon, this is after the, the group had set off from Cedar City, the militia had set off to finish the deed and to kill him under the direction of the um, stake president. At 2 o'clock that afternoon, leaders of the Cedar City Female Benevolent Society held a regular meeting. Sister Haight reported that she had been visiting some of the Cedar women and taught them the necessity of being obedient to their husbands and not to be fearful in these troublesome and squally times. Um, they'd advised the women they visited to attend strictly to secret prayer in behalf of the brethren that are out acting in our defense. So prayer, prayer creeps in here, too. And then there's this comment in the... Um, 
as as they got ready for the final uh, killings in the chapter, decoyed out and destroyed. I'm reading on page 187. The men sat in a circle off by themselves and began by praying for divine guidance, a sacrilege that only the passage of the passions of the time could explain. So we do have we do have prayer. We we do have prayer in the book too. Now I find this troublesome. <laughs> I, I find it more than troublesome. I find it troubling enough that it's worth commenting on uh, as we get into the subject of Revelation. Because um, there is a competition afoot. It, it is a competition that um, if, if history should inform us of anything, it should inform us of, of, of this tension. This is always the case. There is, there is always an effort to, um, to, to turn the gospel of Christ into religion and to turn religion into something that is very different. And you have to be on your guard, and the church has to be on its guard, and every one of us have to wage war against this process because this process is foreseeable, predictable, knowable. If you want to know how it happened in the past, all you have to do is study the past. Um, I was surprised um, in reading... I watched the soccer game, okay? I, I did. But there were, there, were, there were timeouts. There were, I don't know what they did to bring that little girl into that crumpled ball off, off the, I mean, it didn't look like that, but the girl that kicked her was rather big. Um, and then we had halftime. And so there were long periods when I was reading this just a few hours ago. Yeah. In any event, uh, this is um, this is the book I'm waging into at the moment. It's the latest in the Hugh Nibley collected works, um, "Eloquent Witness: Nibley on Himself, Others, and the Temple," and and some of this stuff um, struck me. This uh, a publication of um, the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship, uh, Hugh Nibley and Associates LLC. See, there didn't used to be Hugh Nibley and Associates. Yeah, Tom, uh, the, the, the next generation of LLC'd up. And printed by Deseret Book Company. So, so there's hope. I mean, there's happy news. This squeaked through. Let me read you. I mean, these, these two books came out at virtually the same time. And they were hot on the shelves when I walked in and took them off a few days ago. Uh, this is Nibley in an interview that they've published. And so here we go. And the two marks of the church I see are and have been for a long time these, a reverence for wealth and a contempt for the scriptures. <laughs> Naturally, the two go hand in hand. We should call attention to the fact that these things are, are doing, we are doing, are against the work of the Lord. There is one saying of Joseph Smith I think of quite often. If the heavens seem silent at a time when we desperately need revelation, it's because of covetousness in the church. God had often sealed up the heavens because of covetousness in the church. And now the church isn't just shot through with covetedness. It is saturated with covetousness. And so the heavens are going to be closed. 
we're told we don't, we don't get revelation if we put our trust in money in the bank. Well, okay, what do you do? Well, that's answered a little later in the, in the same book. If you seal the heavens up because you're covetous, then this is a description of what happened in the Christian church, okay? The, the history of Christianity um, and the church fathers were now couple of hundred years post um, uh, Christ and uh, into the era when the apostles are gone and we've got uh, we've got a limit on on ongoing revelation so here I'm reading from page 127 here when the church lost revelation it had to turn to another source for guidance and so threw itself into the arms of the established schools of learning the schoolmen as one of them express it took over the office and function once belonging to the prophets and once in power, guarded their authority with jealous care, quickly and violently suppressing any suggestion of a recurrent inspiration. Well, I shouldn't read this, but this is a great comment. I was forced to admit that the Berkeley Institution is, if anything, less anti-religious than BYU, where religion is under more conscious and deliberate attack. But I do not, for that reason, hold my BYU colleagues culpable. They cannot help themselves. By its very nature, the university is the rival of the church. Its historic mission has been to supply the guiding light which passed away with the loss of revelation. And it can make no concessions to its absolute authority without forfeiting that authority. Um, Yeah. Here's here's another quote a couple pages later. The celebrations of the learned men and not the utterances of the prophets comprise the gospel according to the university. This has been the credo of the Christian schoolmen since the days of Clement of Alexandria. The universities, Christian, Muslim, Jewish, or pagan, has its own religion. And the basic tenet of that religion is the denial of revelation. Um, and then he, he quotes from C.S. Lewis. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna read that, but in any event. So there's hope because this is the, some of the same folks, I'm sure, I didn't look, but I'm sure Jack Welch's name's in here somewhere too. You can't, yeah, you can't get it out in print without him appearing here as he does in the other. So there is hope. There's perhaps some schizophrenia, but hope nonetheless. Um, in in the way that it that it all unfolds. So, what what of it all? You know, there was a time when um, our language is still permeated by words of usage and descriptors which presumed a whole different world than the one we live in now. Words like envision or light. I mean, we, we accept the idea of um, anything that is not um, in, in front of your face being described and using the word envision as, as the manner, the, the proper word to use when you're talking about it. Can you envision what Utah will look like in 2050? Can you envision what the new temple in Draper will look like when it is completed? Can you envision this or that? 
it's a holdover from another period of time in which the, the visionary experience was so commonplace that it leaked into the vocabulary, permeated the vocabulary, and we all thought it, um, we all thought it perfectly uh, appropriate. Um, can you give me further light on that subject? Can you shed some light on that? Are we enlightened on the subject yet? And you can be talking about anything from General Motors to um, solving the problem of uh, sabermetrics, a subject that is worthy of devotion. If anyone here wants to devote themselves to a PhD effort, that's the study of um, uh, mathematics and baseball and figuring out what really wins games. I think, I think uh, Billy... We, we owe a lot to Billy Bean, I'm telling you, the Oakland A's. Um, if, you have a, um, if you have a resistance to reading um, obscenities in print, then you ought not get it. But if you'd really like to know what baseball is all about, that, that book Moneyball is just, it's, it's full of light and truth. <laughs> and a n- number of obscenities at the same time. So, so then we get, we, we encounter, Joseph, Joseph defies categorization. Joseph brought a flood of light, literally a flood of light. And I, I appreciate um, the efforts of the scholars. I applaud the work that they do, but they don't give us the answers. You have to find a revelator if you would like to get the answers. And the preeminent one for our time was and is Joseph Smith. He covered the turf. What we're trying to do is catch up with him uh, and to figure out what it was that, that he was talking about. Joseph repeatedly said, hey, I can't go any further than this. The Lord forbid me from saying anymore. And many more things did he reveal unto me, which I cannot at this time put into, put into right. But great and marvelous were the things which the Lord showed unto me and the mysteries of his kingdom, which surpass all understanding, which we were commanded we should not write while we were yet in the spirit. I mean, it's the, 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 the account of the first vision, the account that we find in section 76, repeatedly in the Book of Mormon. We get right up to the precipice and then we draw the curtain. And the scriptures say, now we're not gonna go there. And why aren't we going to go there? We're not going to go there because, well, we would profane it. We would, we would take and we would desecrate it if we put it on public view. Well, doesn't the Lord want us to know this stuff? Well, of course he does. Of course he does. In the proper setting, with the proper person, in the proper light, so that you know that it will not be profaned or desecrated, the Lord will show anything to anyone that anyone would like to see. He's told us that. Joseph said that repeatedly. He didn't show me, this is Joseph speaking, anything that he won't show unto the least of you. Uh, Hey, Benjamin, can you come here? Make sure you lock it when you come back. But in the middle, I left the teachings of Prophet Joseph Smith. It's a small leather-bound copy, and it's right in between the seats. Yeah. We need Joseph in more ways than one. 
See, Joseph, Joseph was way, way out ahead. We still haven't caught up, and we display the least amount of curiosity about the things which are most enticing. <laughs> he throws out a statement, and, and he just dangles it, and then no more. And, and what, what was the reaction of Nephi to the dangling statements versus the reaction of Laman and Lemuel to the dangling statements? We know what Laman and Lemuel said. They said, the Lord maketh no such thing known unto us. And what did Nephi say? He said, hey, have you inquired of him? Have you asked? Have you asked? Have you asked? No, we haven't asked. The Lord maketh no such thing known unto us. Well, I've got, I've got this, and then I've got this. <laughs> Now you be careful. You be very careful. In the in the um, uh, Encyclopedia of Mormonism on the subject of Revelation, um, one of the great precautionary statements there is, "The devil. The devil's gonna crop up and mislead you." I noticed that on the um, it was the twentieth anniversary, I think. It may have been the 25th anniversary because that, I mean, that, that was in the intro. I didn't, I didn't keep that in mind. Uh, to a news article on KSL this last week, um, we had a, uh, hey, thanks. We had a um, um, repetition of the, um, the woman who threw her children off of the 11th floor and killed them, and then she jumped off and killed them, and then the brother-in-law to the woman, the uncle to the children, giving his explanation of how the, the, the husband, his brother, her husband, uh, was Jesus Christ and was God the Father, and that because he had died, that the, the family had... Um, committed mass suicide to be with him again. And can you imagine the faith that that took? And and that incident, again, is another cautionary tale. Be careful. Be afraid. Be very, very afraid. Uh, Revelation, you could be John D. Lee. Revelation, you could throw people off a balcony. Be very afraid. These are not... Um, These are not just random happenstances. <laughs> um, this is the era in which we find ourselves. This is the this is the times in which we live. Well, this is from the teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith. A comment that Joseph made, and and again, there's so much of this that I would canonize in the teachings if um, if I were given discretion to ask you to sustain things in adding to Scripture, we'd have a bigger quad. We'd all look like high priests. <laughs> so this is from page 51. We consider that God has created man with a mind capable of instruction and a faculty which may be enlarged in proportion to the heed and diligence given to the light communicated from heaven to the intellect and that the nearer man approaches perfection, the clearer are his views, and the greater his enjoyments. See, he's, I mean, this is Joseph Smith using, 
using really prose to describe the process because because for Joseph it was prosaic it was poetry it was it was a thing of beauty light communicated from heaven to the intellect a mind capable of instruction a faculty that may be enlarged in proportion to the heed and diligence it's given these aren't just idle words. These are Joseph trying to put into the English language a description of a process. And, and the process works. Well, a couple of other scriptures before we start onto something. Um, this is from Doctrine and Covenants, section 93, one of, one of Joseph's most profound revelations. Um, in section 93, he says... Um, beginning of verse 27, no man receives a fullness until he keepeth his commandments. He that keepeth his commandments receiveth truth and light until he is glorified in truth and knoweth all things. Well, that's interesting. Keeping commandments, receiving truth and light, glorified in truth, knows all things. Then he adds, man was also in the beginning with God. Intelligence or the light of truth, was not created or made, neither indeed can be. All truth is independent in that sphere in which God has placed it, to act for itself, as all intelligence also. Otherwise, there's no existence. The glory of God is intelligence, or, in other words, light and truth. Light and truth forsake that evil one. That wicked one cometh and taketh away light and truth through disobedience from the children of men and because of the tradition of their fathers. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're fetching up on that, aren't we? Um, so we've got these interesting statements and, and, and there's this, this notion that there is some relationship between keeping commandments on the one hand and receiving truth and light on the other hand. And then there is this statement about intelligence or the light of truth wasn't created or made. Intelligence wasn't created or made. Intelligence or the light of truth. And the glory of God then, it's redefined. Glory of God, intelligence, light of truth. Okay? In two separate statements, in verse uh, 36 and 29, uh, it's reiterated for us twice that intelligence, that which can't be created or destroyed and can't be created or destroyed, intelligence, is light and truth light and truth, co-equal with God. Now, that's, a, um, that's an interesting statement because here, we have the word intelligence. And it appears, it appears here in the singular. When you go back to Abraham chapter 3, verse 
beginning uh, in verse 22, it says, Now the Lord had shown unto me, Abraham, the intelligence says that we're organized. Now we've encountered something that has a plural to it. And in Abraham chapter 3, when it talks about the plural form of this, the intelligences that were organized before the world was, among all these, there were many of the noble and great ones. Um, he stood among those that were, yeah. From what then were your spirits organized? Light and truth. Okay. At your core, at your nub, at the very essence of what it is that constitutes you to be you, what is it that constitutes you to be you? Light and truth. There's another place where, <laughs> where a description is given of the Lord, Christ, in the preexistence. In the beginning was the Word. Now, that's an interesting thought, <laughs> that Word. So what you have at your core is light and truth or intelligence, which is what? The glory of God. God the Father. You're derivative from him. He is the creator or the organizer. But what he created or organized you from is light and truth. Okay, now this ought to become increasingly obvious to you as you look at what we were reading in section 93. Why, why is it necessary, therefore, for you to keep his commandments in order for you to receive truth and light? Why? Why is that the way it works? Why must you keep the commandments if you want to get more of this? Exactly. We're trying to harmonize ourselves with him. We're trying to get back to him. We're trying to get ourselves aligned correctly so that when we resonate in the same way that he resonates, we can pick up on things that are not pick upable in the absence of that resonance. We're trying to get in harmony with God. So what are the commandments? What use are they? He's giving us a blueprint. And some, of the, some portions of the blueprint may appear altogether ridiculous. We're supposed to do them anyway. And why are we supposed to do the things that may seem even ridiculous anyway? Because at your very core, you know. You know if it comes from him. And you know when you're getting light and truth from him. There is never a futile act. You know when you pay tithing that you're doing something 
he asked you to do. And you know what? If it involves a sacrifice, you know all the more by that sacrifice. This is what Joseph was trying to get across in the lectures on faith. Would you like to know God? Then go inconvenience yourself by following what he asks of you, and you will unlock inside yourself resonance with the light and truth of God. And it's an unfolding process. It grows. Well, you got to go back to 50 for that. It grows. Let me find that. Which is really also borrowed from the Psalms. Your Proverbs, rather. That which is of God is light, and he that receiveth light and continueth in God receiveth more light. And that light groweth brighter and brighter until the perfect day. Proverbs 4.18 has a similar thought. But it's, it's, a dynamic, it's a dynamic process. It involves your, um, again, you know, we're victims of our time, your interface with God. Let's <laughs> see, another 500 years and the gospel will be perverted by computer terminology. But um, the way you link up to God, see, there it goes again, is by this, this mechanism of obeying the commandments that he's given you. And it's never futile. And it's, it's, never, it's never superfluous. It, it's, it's how you, as a being at your core made of light and truth, know that you're pleasing God. In the lectures on faith, Joseph said, you had to know that the sacrifice that you were making was pleasing to God. How can you know that? You can know that because in your core... You have light and truth. That's why I read the quote a few minutes ago. The nearer you come to God and the more obedient you are, the more heed and diligence were the words that he used in in that statement. The more heed and diligence that you give, the more correct your understanding will be. Why is that the case? Because you are enlightened. Because you are enlivened. Because you are drawing closer to him. Uh, one of the great descriptions of how Christ um, uh, did what he did, in addition to, to 93, as in section 20 of the Doctrine and Covenants, um, beginning at verse 20, 21, wherefore the Almighty God, and by the way, since we're not in church, you could actually get your scriptures out and read along. <laughs> I talk, I talk in a, a ward tomorrow as the high council representative and, and as, as prohibito um, tomorrow. But today, you can get your scriptures out. This is uh, DNC section 20, beginning at verse 21. Can you, can you hear that annoying rustling of the pages? Because these things... These things aren't made of paper. They're made of fabric. That's, that's cotton you're hearing. And it, it's, it's just, a, it, it, it grieves the spirit and withdraws itself. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
Yeah, some of mine won't. Uh, okay, so um, we're, we're reading beginning at verse 21. Wherefore, the Almighty God, and by the way, if we can't laugh at ourselves, there's something really, really wrong with us. I mean, if we take ourselves so seriously that we can't look at and say the most comedic thing on earth is a Mormon trying to rel- live his religion, uh, then, then you miss the point. <laughs> I mean, we, we do not attain to perfection in this life. The, the, the visions that we read in Scripture all have a constant theme, and the constant theme is a wretch managed to make it into the presence of God, and then God fixes the wretch. What was the very first thing, not in our current version of the uh, first vision, but it is in the earlier versions that Joseph write, wrote, what is the very first thing God does when Joseph's in his presence? He f- forgives his sins. He cleans the mess up. Joseph, you know, you're a wretch. Let's fix that. Okay, now now you can endure my presence. Uh, uh, Isaiah in the temple. Uh, Woe is me. I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Fetch the coal to fix the guy. Coals from the altar, touch to the lips. There, purged. You're you're okay. Look, we, we really are comedic our 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 religion uh promises the the fantastic it promises the perfection of of us frail messed up insecure human souls we we get hungry we get thirsty we get tired we are vulnerable we're subject to pain we're going to ultimately die every one of us we have infirmities and they progress over time what about us can possibly be perfected? And you look at it and say, I can't detect a thing. Oh, oh, wait, there is one thing. You can be perfect in your desire. You can hope for it. And, and for God, that's enough. As long as you make the kind of sacrifice that he would like to have you make preliminarily. And we're talking about that at this point, and we're reading from verse 21 of DNC section 20, where it says, Wherefore, the Almighty God gave his only begotten Son, as it is written in those scriptures which have been given of him. He suffered temptations, but gave no heed unto them. He was crucified, died, and rose again the third day and ascended into heaven. See, he suffered temptations, but gave no heed unto them. Turn back to DNC section 130. Um, Verse 19 in section 130 says, if a person gains more knowledge and intelligence in this life through his diligence and obedience than another, he will have so much the advantage in the world to come. Well, that's what Christ did. Christ gave no heed to the things that were pulling him in the one direction. And he gave strict heed to the things that were enticing him to the other direction. And he obtained, as section 93 explains, a fullness of that. So if there is an increasing flow of light an increasing flow of truth that comes to someone by their heed and diligence in following the commandments, then 
that seems like a fairly simple formula for someone to follow if they're interested in obtaining further light and knowledge. There was a time when all of these words crept into our language and their usage in our common vernacular became popular, when everyone, everyone simply assumed that we all were in contact with the mystic, with the mythic, with the the forces that were around you. Everyone simply assumed that was the case. There was a... um, there was a way of of um, of describing the phenomenon, and and the way that the that the ideal was reduced to words was by using the concept of a third eye. Well, why why that? Well, it's because physically your eyes are the source that light gets into you. You perceive light through your eyes. So if you're going to collect light from somewhere else. Two things are essential. The first thing is you have to realize that it's there and then you have to be willing to see it. Well, it was a fairly common thing because people weren't as well educated as they are now. They weren't, yeah, they weren't, they weren't schooled in naturalism and the philosophies of men which we have so successfully commingled with Scripture that we have essentially supplanted in all of Christendom the gospel of Christ and replaced it with the doctrines of men and the precepts of men and the creeds of men. And we're beginning to develop our own set of creeds. You see, it's, it's hard. It's hard to keep the commandments. It involves inconvenience and sacrifice. It's hard. And for some folks, in a trial and error kind of way, it's like riding a bicycle. And when you start riding a bicycle, you get bloodied elbows and bloodied knees, and you make mistakes, and it's unhappy. But you know what? You can write a Ph.D. thesis on riding a bicycle without ever getting on a bike or ever suffering an injury. Well, isn't that interesting? Because that's essentially the trade-off that we've made. That's the trade-off that Christendom made. And that's the trade-off that is rapidly, rapidly advancing right now. I mean, why, would, why would Satan ever change his agenda? Why would he ever invent a new tool if the old one works perfectly well? If I can use um, the sexual appetite of men to destroy a David, well, why not just bust that thing out all the time and aim it at whoever happens to promiscuously get in front of me? In that context, the word means randomly. And it was a pun. In any event, um, why invent a new way of corrupting the truth when the old way has been so entirely serviceable? When the Jews returned from the discipline of Babylon, they learned the wrong lesson. 
and they became uh, sophisticates in the Babylonian system of thought, which, as Lehi would tell us, was necessary because they were the only people that would kill their god. And they had to be in the right frame of mind, which is to say, screwed up, (laughs) in order to be willing to kill their god because no one else would do it. It takes a lot of learning to really be in hell because the gospel of Christ beckons people to become childlike and to become simple. That's not to say the gospel is simplistic because it comprehends all truth and it involves light and it involves everything that is, everything that was, everything that is, and everything that will be. And there are enormous surprises along the way. The gospel of Christ ought to be a delightful process of discovering new things all the time. Well, at a time when people understood this idea that you could take in light, that it was that it was possible to tune in and to receive information. And by the way, this information was so readily available that you just had to be sensitized to the awareness of its existence and the willingness to look into the matter for you to begin receiving it, whether you were uh, Lutheran or Calvinist or uh, involved in folk magic. In fact, folk magic largely Uh, grew out of the idea that you can tune into these things. This has been a war that has been waged and waged successfully. (laughs) And um, it's it's my own people that did it. I'm I'm just, the the Scottish Enlightenment and my ancestors, they just, you know, David Hume and and the the gang, they, they, they won. And whether you know it or not, your minds are full of that crap. And Joseph Smith brought, he was was carefully selected at the time that he came, at the end of one epoch, and the American Revolution was a war against some of that stuff. We wanted to preserve an island, a place, where you could still be in touch with the deity and be free to accept and receive things from the deity. Uh, There were more things in play at the time of the American Revolution than simply um, a new form of representative government. It was trying to preserve an ideal, an ideal that was rapidly fading, and and allow an environment in which people could continue to, to, to be in touch with God, however you envisioned your God to be because there were things available that if you would let them in, would speak to you, if you were willing to see them. Why does, um, why does a mother suddenly know that her child is in danger uh, at the edge of the camp with her back turned and drops everything and runs and, and catches her child before Uh, he or she falls in the creek. We've all read stories about that. Ooh, um, uh, tuition or intuition or, uh, you know, PMS. uh, (laughs) Somehow it's ovarian. I... 
see, we, we tend to reduce that to the, to the biological function now, but there was a time when everyone accepted the fact that that was sight, that was vision, that was light. She saw it. She envisioned it. You know, um, you do you do fall down and you do scuff your elbows and your knees when you learn to ride a bike. But when you finally master it, it's the closest thing you will do to flight other than flying. And I don't even think an airplane feels like flight as much as riding a bicycle does. I'm so converted to the principle that I own four Harleys and I fly about on them. <laughs> yeah, it's cost me a few tickets, that flight. <laughs> but you can't, you, you can talk about bicycles, you, you, can, you can build them, you can repair them, you can have discourses on them without ever having experienced the bike. And what the schoolmen are trying to do is, um, is change the subject. The subject ceases to be that, that sensation, that, that, that wonderment, that childlike experience of getting in the seat and running down the road and leaning as you propel yourself under your own strength into something that nearly replicates flight itself and changes that into something that can be controlled and, and bona fide, and we can credential it, and we can give you a bachelor's of bicycledom, and we can give you a master's of uh, derailers. Now we're getting even more specialized because it's not simply the bicycle as one component. At the master's level, we're talking derailers. And if you would like to go on to and graduate to axles, well, that's a PhD. And so we never encounter the vision. We can fill libraries up with crap, talking about it, and never do it. And the gospel that Christ delivered and the thing that Joseph was trying to describe for us was the doing of it. There was another analogy, and I, I like it. I like it a lot too. It's an analogy I borrow from uh, John Larson, and it's not not original with me. He he likens it to um, the the launch pad that's built down at Cape Canaveral, where um, we have this enormous infrastructure, and it's all kept and and preserved and polished. And but if you never fly anything out of it, then um, all you've got is a launch pad. The gospel of Christ was designed to be a launch pad. One of the unfortunate things about launching is you melt a bunch of stuff and you make a mess. I mean, anytime you fire one off, it gets kind of ugly for a while. And of, of all things, we Mormons would like to be its orderly and punctual and uniform. We would, we would hate to have the mess, the chaos, the disaster of, I mean, we all remember John Page, right? And 
we got a section of the Doctrine and Covenants about Page, and he's the guy with the peep stone, the seer stone that 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 got rebuked for having visions because it came from the wrong place. Well, you know, we learned the wrong lesson from that. <laughs> the the lesson from that is not that John Page got misled and had a false revelation using a peep stone that gave him bad information. The message from that is spirits were afoot. Now let's get let's let's weed them out. Let's figure out which ones are are bad and which ones are good, but let's stay in touch with them. Let's let's keep the dialogue going. Take that stone and take a hammer to it. Go find some others. Because as far as I know, John Page is the only one other than Joseph in this dispensation who claimed to have contemporaneous revelation using a seer stone. Although I'm sure there were others, they aren't published. Well, yeah. I mean, the, the whole idea, the idea of the crystal ball or uh, crystal ball gazing, the Urim and Thummim, the, these things, they're traditions, they're echoes, they're found everywhere, and they're based upon the truth. Well, look, um, Ether chapter 4, verse 11. Uh, I'm going to the last sentence of it. Uh, Ether 4, verse 11. For because of my spirit, he shall know that these things are true. For it persuadeth men to do good. And whatsoever thing persuadeth men to do good is of me. For good cometh of none, save it be of me. I am the same that leadeth men to all good. He that will not believe my words will not believe me, that I am. See, he that will not believe my words will not believe me. It's a real simple test. Did the words you heard originate from God? You should be able to tell that. You should be able to say, sitting and listening, I hear God in that. And then whoever it is that's speaking, it doesn't matter if she's an elderly widow, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if he's a stake president. It doesn't matter. You have to hear him in the words that come. And then it ceases to be the woman or the man who is standing in front of you, and it becomes the Lord. And the person is simply, I mean, good for them. They, they resonated with him, and they, they caught on to something. Turn back to Moroni chapter 7. It's the same thing. Moroni chapter 7, verse 16. For behold, the Spirit of Christ is given to every man. Wow, now there, there's another thought. Spirit of Christ. Given to everyone. You have a link to Christ. By virtue of the fact that you're here, you have a link to Christ. Okay? The Spirit of Christ is given to every man, and in this sense, man means mankind. It's not sexist. Yeah. That he may know good from evil. Wherefore, I show unto you the way to judge. 
for everything which inviteth to do good and to persuade to believe in Christ is sent forth by the power and gift of Christ. Wherefore, ye may know with a perfect knowledge, it is of God. But whatsoever thing persuadeth men to do evil and believe not in Christ and deny him and serve not God, then ye may know with a perfect knowledge it is of the devil. For after this manner doth the devil work, for he persuadeth no man to do good. No, not one. Neither do his angels, neither do they who subject themselves unto him. Satan is so committed to doing evil that he's treacherous even to those that will follow him. He won't support those who say, I'll follow you, Satan, if you'll do something for me. And Satan will say, I'll do it. Come follow me. And you come follow him, and he doesn't support you. And you say, wait a minute. You said you'd make that bargain. And he says, I'm a liar from the beginning. I'll always tell you what you want to hear because I'm a liar. Yeah, he is unreliable. He doesn't even support those who follow him, as the Book of Mormon makes the point repeatedly with those who, after having followed him and succeeded in bringing others to apostasy, are not sustained by him. Well, the thing to fear is not the existence of Satan or the fact that you may be deceived. That's a given. Turn on your TV. Uh, I don't know. Do Toyota trucks really get that mileage? I mean, you're, you're being deceived every time Wall Street has your attention. The glitter, the glitz, the garbage they're trying to sell you. If you love your family, you'll buy some wretched piece of trinkery from someone somewhere because they know you like families. If you love your wife, you'll do some hopelessly pathetic uh, physical uh, acquisition and make an offering to the goddess, and then she'll be pleased. (laughs) And it doesn't work that way. Because if you come bearing rings and trinkets and you're a jerk, she's going to see right through the rings and the trinket to the jerk. It's just, they, they're not fooled. Hollywood says, hey, trick them this way, and, you know, we've got Viagra for the elderly. It could work out. <laughs> it, it's not difficult as... as um, Moroni points out both in his interlude in, um, in Ether and again in chapter 7 of Moroni, it's not difficult to tell the difference. It's really not. Satan deceived me. Well, why did he deceive me? Well, he deceived me primarily because I wanted to be deceived. I knew it was a crappy deal. I knew what I was up to was no good. I had this nagging feeling at my core because I am, after all, made of light and truth, that something was wrong with this, but I did it anyway. I mean, how many times do those who are caught, the the primary antagonists of the Book of Mormon, when they're caught and they're not supported by Satan and they collapse at the last day, how many times do they confess, yeah, I knew all along I was deceived. 
I knew all along it was wrong, but I did it. I taught it. I preached it. I participated in it. I urged it. I knew it was a lie, but I nearly believed it myself because I had success at it. It looked good. It felt good. It was fun. There is nothing more fun, however, than gathering light and truth. We're sent down here on a journey in which we are supposed to be getting added upon. Those are the words. That was the goal. We're going to send people down to the second estate. And what's the goal? The goal is to be added upon. But what are we adding? What are you adding to yourself that you didn't have before? You're adding light and truth. You came with a certain amount of it. You're supposed to leave with a greater quantity of it. Um, uh, the uh, description given in section 93 of Christ. I, John, bear record that I beheld his glory. This is verse 11 of section 93. His glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father. Uh, you know, you're just going to have to do your best with this. I'm going to leave that up. We've got... We've got this idea that um, uh, God the Father and uh, his unnamed consort, Mrs. God the Father, uh, had a son, and we know him as Jesus or Jehovah, um, and then I had another son or sons or some of some others, and we got Lucifer uh, and some 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 others and what have you. And then this group, these are called sons of the morning. And um, then there's this this um, uh, birth order, and eventually we get down to the rabble that we were among, and. Um, and that, that that picture is this is this linear um, development of the family of God. If you read very carefully what we find in section ninety three, there's another picture, and that picture is that you have this you have this group of imagine all of these being little stick figures because I don't have the time to draw them. You have them all, and Oh, I think I can read you something on this. Um, yeah. This is the manner after which they were ordained, being called and prepared from the foundation of the world according to the foreknowledge of God, on account of their exceeding faith and good works. In the first place, being left to choose good or evil, therefore they having chosen good and exercised exceeding great faith, are called to the holy calling. Um, or in fine, in the first place, they were on the same standing with their brethren. Okay? This is um, chapter 13 of Alma. 
So let's change that picture, and let's say that instead of um, this, everyone was on the same. In the first place, in the first place, everyone was just alike. Everyone had um, the same potential. Everyone had the same light and truth. Everyone was made of that. Everyone was just like one another. Where did the birth order come from? Where did Christ come from? 93, beginning at verse 11, this is John. And I'm starting at verse 11, but we'll back up in a minute. And I, John, bear record that I beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, even the spirit of truth, which came and dwelt in the flesh and dwelt among us. Okay, this is him. He came and he dwelt here. But I, I'm talking about the preexistence, I saw that he received not the fullness at first. He received not the fullness at first, but he continued from grace to grace until he received a fullness. Thus he was called the Son of God because he received not the fullness at the first. What did he do? One of this group, one of this family, one of this assortment of people, one of them went from grace to grace until he... received the fullness. He proved it could be done. He showed the way. He was called the only begotten of the Father. He was called that because he embodied the Word of God. Would you like to know what God the Father's Word was? Look at Him. Look at the only begotten. Did you make it without Him? No, you didn't. You didn't make it here without Him. Christ proved the word of the Father by the things which he did. As a consequence of Christ doing it, some few others, in turn, were also able to rise up. And they became sons of the morning. You see, that... The picture that we get in DNC section 93, coupled with Alma chapter 13, is different than the picture that you sometimes pick out or get described for you. Look at verse 30 of section 93. 
All truth is independent in that sphere in which God has placed it. To act for itself as all intelligence also. Otherwise, there is no existence. Did Christ exist? If Christ existed, he had to be free to choose for himself. This had to be a voluntary act on his part. He had to be willing to receive the light and truth. Believe it or not, we're all just talking about the same thing. (laughs) This is just about personal revelation. All of it is. And it's about how you receive light and truth. Because we're acting out again here what we acted out once before. And the process is the same here as the process was there. Although here it's coupled with a lot of illusions that are guaranteed to to make you progress whether you want to or not. Uh, It's coming. So when you look at the Word of God, what you're seeing in Christ is the embodiment or the fulfillment of what the Father said. When Christ defines himself in uh, 3 Nephi chapter 11 and he tells you who he is, he can't tell you who he is without referring to the Father three times in, in a very brief introduction. I suffered the will of the Father in all things from the beginning, he tells us. He is the word of the Father. He is the embodiment of the things that the Father would like to have for us. So why do we obey the commandments? Why do we follow the process? Why do we want to go from grace to grace? And how do we open the third eye to be able to resonate with and receive light and truth into ourselves from the being who is defined as light and truth? Well, I read another book just a few days ago. I've heard that uh, he's written a good book. Um, uh, I was challenged to read this one, and I was ch- challenged by reading it. <laughs> just, you, can't, you can't pick up that title without... Well, maybe you can. Um, uh, odds are you're going to be exalted. Well, he's got a, he's got a, um, a master's degree in theology and a PhD in biblical studies. So he has credentials. Alonzo Gaskell. Actually, I was going to leave him alone, but I heard him on the radio a couple of days ago. And it was that, it was the tone in his voice. It was the, it was the absolute, um, resolute, bitter, um, hostile conviction that God wouldn't do that on the radio that just struck me. Um, convinced me I don't, I don't want to talk to the man. But in any event, here's, here's a quote. Here's a quote from his book. The thought that God would promote something that would ensure that the vast majority of its children would never again be able to dwell in his presence is incomprehensible. And the assumption that our mother in heaven would idly sit back and allow such a guaranteed flop to eternally strip her of any interaction with her offspring, spirit offspring, is equally unfathomable. Such could not and did not happen! Exclamation point. 
I couldn't contain myself, and I wrote, why? <laughs> you see, nature tells us that of all, of all the male turtles that are born, precious few of them are ever going to survive long enough to reproduce. And of all the bull elk that are born, precious few of them are going to survive long enough to ever reproduce. And he's made the cataclysmic leap of presuming that all children who die under the age of eight are promised something other than the celestial kingdom, which is what the scriptures say that they're promised. They inherit the celestial kingdom. He's leapt to exaltation, which is a different kind of life within the celestial kingdom. And he does some math calculations based upon the millennium, based upon the uh, number of children. Uh, infant mortality tells us will die before the age of eight. And um, the city of Enoch and um, uh, people who are unaccountable because they're mentally impaired, um, which I presume would include most of the faculty of many of our learned universities. Um, uh, equals in his computation that the odds are you're going to be exalted. The problem is none of us fit in the category about which he's exalting. You've lived beyond the age of eight except the kids that aren't listening. And uh, you're, you're, well, I'm just going to say you're not retarded. I need to, I need to at least hesitate on that point. You're, I don't think you're mentally impaired, uh, although some of us are. Um, and you don't live during the millennium, and you weren't in the city of Enoch, and you're not part of the um, Nephite centuries and the post-visitation uh, by Christ. I mean, the audience, you know, odds are you're going to be exalted. You peddle that to children under eight, peddle it during the millennium, maybe you got an audience. But the audience to which this is directed is you, and he's trying to tell you that this isn't hard when everything that the Savior said implies very strongly that this is hard and that few there be that make it and that it's, it's designed just like nature is designed to, to, to start with a lot and to, and to end up with a few. And that the, the, the lessons of nature tell us that you will start with a lot and you will end up with a few. Just like this, this overly generous um, outpouring of... Um, priesthood ordination to, to anyone who is uh, 12 years old or older who happens to be baptized in the church results in just the most promiscuous series of priesthood certificates of any dispensation ever. But then we read, behold, there are many called, but uh, a few are, are then chosen. Why are they not chosen? Because their hearts are so set upon the things of this world. They aspire to the honors of men. They don't learn this one lesson. The rites of the priesthood are inseparably connected with the powers of heaven. And the powers of heaven cannot be controlled or handled only upon the principles of righteousness, that they may be conferred upon us. It's true. But when we undertake to cover our sins or gratify our pride, our vain ambition or to exercise control or dominion or compulsion upon the souls of the children of men in any degree of unrighteousness, behold, the heavens withdraw themselves. 
The spirit of the Lord is grieved, and when it's withdrawn, amen to the priesthood or the authority of that man. See, uh, odds are you're going to be a priest. Well, that they may be conferred upon us, it's true, but I just read a bunch of limitations. Odds are you're going to be exalted. Well, you can go to the temple and fetch an ordinance, but unless it's sealed upon you by the Holy Spirit of promise, you know, all those things are conditional. And, and, and so it's not, the call is to do this. The call is to come down here and be a gatherer of light. And it doesn't matter if the process seems so ephemeral. It, 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 it seems gossamer. It seems like a, a, the, the web of a spider and so delicate that the blowing of the wind can tear it apart. That's exactly how it's supposed to be because you're trying to get in harmony with God and you're trying to gather a substance that proves your existence by your free will choice to accept light and truth. When you do, Joseph uh, said you could taste the truth. When you do, you can feel the truth. You can sense its presence. You can let it into you. You can resonate with it. Um, the, um, boy, we're not going to get to stuff. And I have to go buy frozen pinky mice. <laughs> Yeah. When you go back to the account that's given in section 93 and you go back to the description that's given in um in Abraham chapter 3 you you learn in Abraham chapter 3 that that the father shows or Christ shows uh, acting in the role as the father um all of the organized intelligences that existed before the world was and among this all, there were a subset uh, called many that were noble and great. If you can read that scratch. Saw many that were noble and great. And God saw these souls that they were good. These souls that they were good. And he stood in the midst of him and said, these will I make my rulers. Um, these are the people that are going to teach truth and light. These are the ones that are going to come down and bring to you revelation. These are the ones that are going to shed forth light and truth. They're not administrators. These will I make my rulers. For he stood among those that were spirits. He saw they were good. And he said unto me, Abraham. So we know that, that, that one of them is like the son of God, but another one is Abraham. Abraham, thou art one of them. Thou was chosen before thou was born. There stood one among them that was like unto God, and that's Christ. Christ stood among them, okay? He, Christ, he said to those that were with him, okay? Christ talking to noble and great, he says to them, we 
we will go down, this group. We will go down for their space there. We will take of these materials. We will make an earth whereon these may dwell. And we will prove them to see if they will do all things whatsoever the Lord their God shall command them. And they will keep their first estate, and so on. Well, this is from the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith. Um, from page 375. Now, says God, when he visited Moses in the bush, Moses was a stammering sort of boy like me. God said, thou shalt be a God unto the children of Israel. God said, thou shalt be a God unto Aaron, and he shall be thy spokesman. I, this is Joseph, I believe those gods that God reveals as gods to be sons of God, and all can cry, Abba, Father. Sons of God who exalt themselves to be gods even from before the foundation of the world and are the only gods I have a reverence for. It's Joseph, just in the middle of a talk, saying that there's a group who exalted themselves to be gods even before they were born. And all of them can cry, Abba, Father. Well, Abraham served as the prophet leader of a little tiny family. We read about him now and think him big cheese, but at the time, he led a badly fractured family and presided over a small group. His apparent one public ministry in Jerusalem resulted in him getting run out of town. From then on, he ministered only inside his own family. Abraham, while he had a fairly interesting career in a varied climate and uh, managed to get to sit on uh, Pharaoh's throne because he taught some things about the heavens and ingratiated himself to Pharaoh, not the least of reason was his wife and her beauty, um, went on to lead a relatively private life in a family, in a family. And we all call him the father of the righteous. Christ's largest audience was in all likelihood the group he spoke to at the temple in Bountiful after his resurrection. During his mortal ministry, in all probability, even in the temple, he didn't have as big an audience as he did at the temple in Bountiful. Perhaps as he hung on the cross, as the crowds were gathering to attend the festivities at the Passover in Jerusalem, more people passed by him and wagged their tongue at him in his um, final state of making the sacrifice, but we don't know that. The, The folks who the scriptures identify as being most clearly noble and great are people that really didn't have much more Uh, responsibility in life than every one of you have inside your own family. You know, um, we get 
filled with covetousness. Because celebrity dumb has come to Zion. And and I, and I, I mean this in all sincerity. I do not intend to be a celebrity. And it's one of the reasons why I don't like talking at these things. Because I think to the extent that you attract attention for yourself, you're missing the mark. The best of us are horribly flawed. The best of us are. Anyone that would attract light or distract people for themselves and take it off of the perfect example that you find in Christ is a fool. They practice the the wrong sort of religion. We're down here to gather light. Whether you recognize it or not, you are a son or a daughter of light. That's what you are. You're down here to gather more of it. And the place where you're primarily responsible for presiding and conducting is inside the confines of your own family. That's why Abraham is remembered. That's why Lehi is remembered. For the most part, the public ministry of ancient prophets was met with almost universal failure. Noah saved his own family. Um, you, you rarely find a prophet or prophetess, and they are in Scripture as well, who succeeds in their own lifetime. Christ got it right when he was saying, the only words of the prophets that you really respect are the dead ones. And why do you respect the dead ones? Well, because then the professors of religion can take over and they can package them and and parse them and explain them or explain them away. Without the living oracle there to be able to say not so fast, you can take the words of any of them and parlay them into whatever you want them to become. Hence, Joseph's insistence that every one of us become a prophet and prophetess. Every one of us get in touch with the things of the Spirit. Every one of us receive what is out there in the way of light and welcome it into yourself. Vessels of light. That's what you're supposed to be. You know, um, it's very basic and 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 i think it's i think it's in all likelihood the case that the first principles and ordinances of the gospel are not the first principles meaning the beginning but they are the first principles meaning the primary the essentials the ones that must be kept the ones that are always in front of you faith You have to have faith in the existence of that light and that truth. Repentance. Why? Because you're made of light and truth, and if you won't reconcile and resonate with it, you won't welcome it in. You create a barrier to it. It can't be shed into you. Faith, repentance, baptism. You're supposed to be doing that every week when you partake of the sacrament. 
that ordinance that Christ celebrated repeatedly with the Nephites over and over. He's taking the time to do the sacrament. And we're supposed to be taking the time to doing that. And then after you've had faith, and after you've repented, and after you've partaken of the sacrament or received baptism, then what happens? Yeah, you receive the Holy Ghost. You receive the Holy Ghost. DNC section 130. The Father, this is verse 22, the Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's, the Son also, but the Holy Ghost has not a body of flesh and bones, but is a personage of spirit. Were it not so, the Holy Ghost could not dwell in us. Receive the Holy Ghost and let it dwell in you. Well, you know, it's, I don't know if the odds are you're going to be exalted or not. But I can tell you that the way in which that will happen, if it does happen, is going to be through, unlike the way in which Revelation is portrayed in this, the latest offering by the powers that be, as something perverse and something that only the nutcases engage in, it will be by your connection with the Spirit. Uh, Moroni chapter 7 is a dissertation on all of those things of the Spirit, and it says, hey, if these things have ceased, then there is no faith and no one's being saved. And it's just that simple. If it doesn't happen, no one's being saved. You're a child of light. You're a son or a daughter of light. You proceed from the glory of God or the intelligence of God, which is light and truth at your core. What is there is light and truth, but it has been made independent. It gets to choose for itself. Otherwise, there is no existence. And you, each of you, need to receive the Holy Ghost, each of you, and to permit it to dwell in you. You know, um, there are a lot of symbols that get employed in the Scriptures. One of the words that gets employed to describe the Holy Ghost which should dwell in you is the third member of the Godhead. Would you like to be like your Father in heaven? Well, then receive ye the Holy Ghost. 
he is as close, he is as intimate, he is as in connection with you as the very substance out of which you were originally organized. If you would like to be in touch with him, keep his commandments, follow him. You're not, even if you do your best, you're not going to do a very good job. But the scriptures talk in terms of your sincerity. Those who keep all his commandments or seek earnestly to do so. You know, we're doing things wrong, even the best of us, that we don't even know are wrong yet because we haven't got that much light and truth yet. And so we proceed to blunder around in the china shop, breaking the furniture and damaging all of the things that we ought to be holding sacred, and we do it with reckless abandon. And God doesn't care about that because he hasn't brought us that far up the ladder yet to respect the furniture. He's just trying to get us to stop messing our pants and stop putting graffiti on the walls. If we'll just settle down enough to do that. The atonement of Christ is a work in progress. He's trying to fix us. And he does that by giving us a little light and a little more light and a little more yet. Until finally, you look back upon yourself from two decades earlier and you say, what a wretch was I. Well, it's a progression in light and truth. You're still a wretch. You're just 20 years away from recognizing it still. Start obeying further and getting more light and truth, and you'll be astonished at what it is you're going to become. Well, let me end by bearing testimony to you that in my view, the church is exactly what it ought to be, staffed exactly as it should be, filled with all you good people, with all of the things that, um, that you bring with you to the party, and that this is a perfect environment in which each one of you get the opportunity to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling before the Lord. And you ought to be afraid. You ought to be fearful. Because the things that you hold on to in your secret sins are the very things that you ought to be abandoning. And the fact that you're holding on to them means you have not yet chosen the light and the truth. You ought to be abandoning that junk, whatever it is. We all have our shortcomings. We all have our temptations. We all have our failings. Despite the bundle of insecurities, and there were many in the prophet Joseph Smith, the prophet Joseph Smith met the Lord. Despite the fact that Abraham was a self-confessed man of unclean lips in the presence of the Lord, didn't stop him from entering into the presence of the Lord. The fact that Peter is, Peter is, is not even a personality. He's a syndrome, okay? He's, he's, got, he's got pathologies. This, this Peter, the chief apostle, the rock, the one that the Lord relied upon, the one that he put first and preeminent. And Paul, well, look, we, you, you have to trust Paul to someone with far more, they have to have prescription authority to deal with him. You can't, a psychologist is insufficient. These people met with the Lord. 
it is not a distant mountain. <laughs> it is not an insurmountable problem. Have faith, repent, go and partake of the sacrament, do so, and I use the word advisedly, do so worthily. By the way, do you know how to determine if you're worthy or not? <laughs> you ask the Lord. You don't do as Brother Gaskell suggests and simply presume it. You do as Joseph said. And after thinking about his native cheery temperament and his inclination towards irreverence, he decided to inquire of the Lord to find out what his standing was. It had been four years since the first vision. And Joseph wanted to know. Joseph didn't presume. In fact, if he were presuming, he would have presumed to the contrary that he was worthy. How am I doing, Lord? And the Lord answered in the form of the angel Moroni. You know, don't settle for a book about riding the bike. Don't settle for polishing up the launch pad. It was designed to be set in motion. It was designed to engage to you. You're supposed to be part of this. The prophetic history of all that we read needs to come down to and be embodied in you and your life. You have whole generations of people that went before you, and you have people that are coming after whose faith, just like our faith in the preexistence, was stimulated by the word of God embodied in the life of Christ, you have people looking upon you and having faith as a consequence of what you're doing. You're called saviors on Mount Zion, not simply because you trek to the temple and you fall asleep during the endowment. You're called that because all of those that went before and all who come after have an investment in your life. You you are the source of faith. You are the source of light for many. Live your life as if you're on stage because believe me, you are. There are people who are being redeemed as a consequence of the investment that they have in you. A failing, flagging, despondent ancestor is being buoyed up by the example you set, you have no private moments and you have no private sins. So stop holding on to them. For goodness sake, they're not only being shouted on the rooftops in the, in the day of judgment, they're being shouted on the rooftops right now. This is only the illusion of privacy. Everything you do is on display, which is why it is so important that you be one who gathers light and truth. You be one who is open to receiving these things, which God offers liberally, liberally, however perverse that may be in political terms in Utah. That's a descriptor of God. He spends money like, like a Democrat with, with the federal budget when it comes to <laughs> giving you light and truth. God giveth liberally. Deficit spending doesn't matter. He gives liberally. So where's the impediment? The impediment is that we lack the faith to bring ourselves into harmony with perfect perpendicularity to the earth because as long as you're in sympathy with the earth, you're out of sync with heaven. 
You have to get perpendicular to it. You have to draw a line between you and it. And when you draw a line, that's one of the reasons why we have gravity. That's one of the symbols that God gave us in this life. If you can walk, you're walking around teaching a lesson about getting in harmony with God to yourself. All things testify of Christ. They all do. And I bear testimony of him. In his name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed this presentation by Denver Snuffer. For more information, including complete transcripts of all of Denver's lectures, please visit restorationarchives.com. If you would like to hear more Light and Truth, please take a moment to subscribe. Just search for Light and Truth in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.